Kyle and Beth, thank you so much. As we turn in our Bibles tonight to Psalm 8, if you're not already there, I want you to notice how this song begins, linking, as it does, both Psalm 7 and Psalm 9. There is actually a very considered flow to these psalms, all 150 of them. They were written, of course, over many, many, many years, and they were written by many different people, but again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they were actually collected, and then there was very definite rhyme and reason, pun intended, for these psalms, and this psalm is no different. That very first verse of Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, what we have just sung. Now look back at chapter 7 in verse 16, or excuse me, verse 17. David says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. So he goes right out of Psalm 7 in verse 17, saying, I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High, right into, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then verse 9 of Psalm 8 finishes with that exact same idea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then look at Psalm 9, the first two verses. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart or my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Do you see how they all connect together? That's because these these collectors, these men who were involved in putting these psalms in the songbook of Israel knew exactly what they were doing and why, and they wanted these three psalms especially to be these songs that were God-centered, songs that were lifted up to God Most High, our Lord Yahweh God, and that's why they have put them together as they have. So as we begin our study of Psalm 8 tonight, let's read it together. You follow along as I read Psalm 8 to the choir master, According to the Gittith, that's probably uh, something that had to do with Gath, uh, that um, area, uh, Goliath of Gath, you remember that? And uh, it might actually have to do with a wine press. We don't know exactly what that may have meant, but it's probably a liturgical term, a musical term of some kind. And he says there, to the choir master, does King David, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes or babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. 
and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8 is divided up into two sections. Two sections. And the first has reference to God's majesty and glory as it is manifested through the praise of little children. You'll find that as we go along. And then the second section is God's majesty and glory as mediated through the pinnacle of his creation, that is, mankind. So the first is the praise of his little children, and the second is the pinnacle of his creation. And before we start to break down these two sections and discuss overall this psalm, I want you to see that while Psalm 8 certainly captures the idea of the glory and honor of mankind, mankind as the pinnacle of God's creation, it is far more, this psalm, about God, about God himself, about our majestic God. I want you to notice 14 times here in Psalm 8, 14 times, Psalm 8 references either you or your when referring to Yahweh God himself. Look at this, verse 1. How majestic is your name, David says, in all the earth. Remember, this is a prayer to God. This is a song for God. This is a song that David is singing to God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Look at the latter part of verse 2. You have established strength because of your foes. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Verse 5, you have made him yet a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you implied crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, you have given him dominion. The next phrase in verse 6, you have put all things under his feet. And then the latter part of verse 9, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who's David talking to? Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Lord. And I've heard preachers and others who will speak from Psalm 8 and they center in on verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And then verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, you've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And I've heard people talk about the glory of man. And it's there, but that's not overall the point. The point is God. I've heard people talk about King David, when he was fighting Goliath of Gath. And I've heard people talk about the strength of David and the boldness of David and the faith of David. Oh, that's there, 
He, he was bold. He did have faith. But the moral of the story about David's defeat of Goliath of Gath was not David, right? It was about God. And so this psalm, Psalm 8, yes, it's talking about God being mindful of man and caring for man and making him a little lower than God himself and crowning him with glory and honor and giving him dominion and putting all things in subjection to his feet. Yes, that's there. But the whole point is to compare that which is true of man with the more majestic God himself. No wonder he says in verse 1, and no wonder he says in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is man's name? No, the Lord's name. That's why the title of the message tonight is The Majesty of Our God. The Majesty of Our God. This, This psalm is all about the Lord, even when it references man. It's, it's the glory of God and what His manifold splendor is doing when it's displayed in the heavens. God has made the world and He stands above that world as the sovereign majestic over it all. Some have contended that Psalm 8 is one of the songs giving lyrics and music to Genesis 1. And I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. We could read Genesis 1, and we'll read a little bit of it tonight, and then we could read Psalm 712, we could read Psalm uh, 9, we could read Psalm 19, we could read Psalm 144, and we find this God who is majestic because of his creation of the world. But here, for some reason, Psalm 8, with David's heart, the whole of this psalm, is the glorifying of God, the magnifying of God, not only in his creative work, but the pinnacle of that creation in man himself. It's a, it's a tribute, it's a song with lyrics and music to the God, creator God of the universe. And how does he do that? How does David do that? Here's the first of those two sections. God's majesty and glory as manifested through the praise of little children. This is a jolt. Uh, this, is, this is something that comes almost right out of the blue. You and I, when we have read this psalm before, uh, maybe you have s- s- uh, seen it in Psalm 8 before, and you say, what is going on here? Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. What in the world does that mean? What is he talking about there? Well, before we get there, we know that it's somehow related to what he says in verse 1. He says in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So whatever he means here in verse 2, It's being derived or an outflow from verse 1. Whatever he's talking about, it's something majestic. It's something God has planned. It's something that he has set to happen. And when he does that, it's going to bring him glory. 
So whatever it is, whatever he's talking about there with regard to the mouth of babes and what comes out of their mouths and infants, whatever's being established because of God's foes, his enemies, the avenging of whoever these foes are against God, against his word, against his people, it's all under the context of God being majestic, his name in all the earth being set as the glory above the heavens. So what is he doing? What is he saying? Well, he's saying something like this. God is majestically glorified when little bitty toddlers and nursing infants praise him. And how do they do that? How do little nursing infants praise God? How do little toddlers, because by the way, that's, that's what it's referring to here. He says, out of the mouth of babes or babies. And that is probably the Hebrew term that speaks of toddlers. Those who are, of course, walking on their own, but still probably not talking much at all. Or the next word, infants, a reference to nursing infants might be even a reference because in that time they nursed babies up to about two or three years old. So you're only talking about those little toddlers and those nursing infants who are up to the ages of two or three. So how can they praise God? And verse 2 says, Out of the mouth of these babes or babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes and to still the enemy and the avenger. And this is quite interesting to me, because when he's talking about babies, and he's talking about infants, and what's happening out of their mouths, what they're either saying, or what God is doing through them, and then he puts them in contrast to God's enemies, God's foes, to still the enemy and the avenger, that is the avenger of God. So here you've got this war scene, and you've got this military context, and yet he's saying that somehow God's majestic name throughout all the earth, the glory that he's set above the heavens, which is the glory of God himself, he's going to do something with babies and with infants that are going to set the defense of God aright to establish strength, maybe even the context there of establishing strength, these babies, these infants, and what they say is going to be God's bulwark, his protection, uh, his honor on display against these who are the avengers, the enemies of God. What is he talking about? Well, I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 21. Turn over to Matthew chapter 21. Do you want to see how the Lord Jesus Christ chooses to use this psalm in the conflict he has with the Jewish religious leaders of his day? This is amazing. Listen to Matthew's gospel account of Jesus. Chapter 21. This is Jesus entering into Jerusalem at his triumphal entry. Matthew chapter 21, verses 14, 15, and 16. This is amazing. And the blind and the lame, according to verse 14, came to him in the temple, and he what? He healed them. But 
when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did in healing the blind and the lame and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were, what? Indignant. They were incensed. And they, these religious leaders, these these chief priests and these scribes who, who should otherwise be also praising God because the son of David is in their midst. But of course, they reject that idea. They, they don't agree with that. Who, who is this proposed son of David? Who is this one who keeps saying about himself that he's the Messiah sent from God? Who is this David's greater son? And so they're indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? In other words, they understood exactly that these children were crying out in unison in the praise of God for the person of Jesus. Because what had he done? He was the miracle worker right in their midst. They'd never seen anybody heal a blind man. They'd never come across anyone who had healed the lame. And so while these Jewish religious leaders should have been praising God along with these children, they don't. And in fact, they do the opposite. Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, this is Psalm 82, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. You know how God snuffs out his enemies? By the praise of himself. The long, continual praising of God through the ages will endure forever and ever, no matter who are the critics. No matter who are the avengers against the God of heaven, the one who created everything. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that resounding praise, even on the lips of little kids, will ultimately defeat every foe of God Almighty. That's what David is talking about in Psalm 2.8. Now, if you're like me, you're saying, well, wait a minute. I mean, Here's the conflict with these Jewish religious leaders. Jesus actually decides, because of his own meditation on Psalm 8-2, to use that. And he says, they are preparing praise for me. And how is that something that when David, now go back to Psalm 8, how is that when David says here, you have established strength because of your, so, your, your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And Jesus quotes this and says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. You don't see that in there, do you? Well, it's because Jesus was quoting from the Septuagint. And the Septuagint, instead of saying you have established strength, is rather talking about the preparedness of praise. 
And there's no contradiction there. The Septuagint is not inerrant. It was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it was, in a sense, more like a paraphrase. And yet Jesus quotes from the Greek Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And what he says is something like this, the way to establish strength, the way to be a bulwark against all your foes, against all of those who want to avenge themselves against you, is to praise God. It's to praise God. Have you seen in some hideous experiences of our world that there are those who want to snuff out Christianity for good, and yet there are people, even in Muslim countries, even in those areas where if you name the name of Jesus Christ, prepare to die. And you and I may have seen actual videotape of Christians dying at the hands of those avengers. And what are they saying? Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. You ever heard this phrase? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the very seed bed for the expansion and extension of the church of Jesus Christ. You can kill us. You can take a knife to our throat. You can decapitate us but we'll continue to praise God because that's who we are. There is not a foe on this planet who can withstand Christians who are willing to die for their faith. You say, well, I mean, yes, I would hope that I would be able to do that. I, I would want to be able to stand up for my faith. Guess what? God uses, this is, this is fascinating, God uses the illustration not of some grown man, not of some grown woman who's been thinking long and hard about their faith in a Christless city, a Christless country. It's not somebody who has studied their Bible for long periods of time. It's not somebody who's looking to die for their faith if need be, who has been matured through the challenges and the sacrifices of life. No, God gains great glory when he puts his praise in the mouth of little babies. God is taking the least of us, the least of these things, and he's saying, I gain great majestic splendor and, and glory when I am able to take the least of those in my kingdom and I put my praise in their mouth. We even use that phrase, don't we? Out of the mouth of babes. And this is what's happening. And by the way, who are these uh, foes? Well, according to Jesus, they're these religious leaders the opposite of what you'd assume. I mean, they're, they're supposed to be the upstanding religious leaders of Judaism itself. And Jesus takes the cue from his father David, his father in that human sense, 
And he says something like this, you are the foes of God, and I tell you this, God is not only taking my own disciples as mature men, and I'm teaching them, and they're following me, and they will one day die for their faith, but God is already starting to do it even from the lips of these little children. Hosanna to the son of David. He's starting them young, and those little children are representative of God's children as over against the foes of God, even these religious leaders who believe themselves to be at the pinnacle of their spiritual maturation. And God says, I'm going to overcome all my foes, even with the least of these little ones, not those religious leaders, not the high and mighty. That's amazing to me. And by the way, at another point, in that same triumphal entry, Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. The same triumphal entry was, was captured by Luke. And what Matthew doesn't reference, there are more who are praising Jesus. These aren't little children at this point, but it's the same idea. Luke chapter 19, verse 37. As he was drawing near, speaking of Jesus, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, his followers, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. That's why it's out of the mouths. They, they cry out to God in rejoicing praise with a voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, all the healing miracles and all the teaching of Jesus, and they say what? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And again, you would assume that children, do they say that? Do uh, young followers of Jesus say that? Yes, they do. But who's supposed to say it? Who's supposed to be the most learned? Who's supposed to be the most ardent followers? The ones who have studied their Bibles, some of them even as rabbis, who are the most spiritually religious of the day. They know the Old Testament like the back of their hands. They are supposed to be the ones at the very pinnacle who are praising God. They're supposed to be the ones saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Is that what they do? And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Hey, look, I'm going to gain praise because my majestic name will be known throughout the whole earth. And if it's not young infants, if it's not young children, young toddlers, and if it's not my own disciples, and if you choose to try to kill every one of them, I tell you what, even if there's not a set of human beings who are around praising God in the person of Jesus Christ, then even these rocks will cry out. Here's the point. God will gain his due praise. 
God will gain his praise. Even if it's coming from the very stones he created when he first fashioned the world into being. And I think with these two references in Matthew and Luke, the protagonists, the Jewish religious leaders, if you look back at Psalm 8, you see the reason why Jesus quotes from it. They are God's foes. They are God's enemies. Yeah, God's going to establish strength, or, as that Septuagint says, God's going to prepare praisers. He's going to prepare praisers. Do you praise God? You know, even if you weren't here tonight, God will have his praisers. He always will. Because he's created the world and he's created those so that whether we're talking about little toddlers, whether we're talking about mature disciples, or whether we're talking about the pinnacle of his true followers, God will be praised. That will never end. It's not even going to end in this life. It's going to be forever and ever and ever. Oh, I know my heart's like yours. When you come on a Sunday morning, when you come on a Sunday night, and when you do that in a very disciplined way, at times when we come, maybe we are distracted by other things. Maybe we aren't always as ready as we need to be to worship our God. But every Sunday of our lives, we have the opportunity to be what God has created us to be. Prepared praisers. And we, by doing that, will be able to be just like little toddlers and out of our mouths is nothing but prepared praise. You know, it's so counterintuitive. I mean, God takes what you and I would believe is the opposite of what he should be doing. I mean, wouldn't it stand to reason that God in his electing grace would just begin to open up all of the eyes of every one of those religious leaders, every scribe, every chief priest, every Pharisee, because they do know the law, they've studied it, they disciple their kids in it. Wouldn't it be for God to say, I want to touch, I want to reach all of the beautiful, all of the bold, all of the studied, all of the aged, everyone who everyone would look to. And no doubt they all look to them, right? I mean, I've heard people say, boy, if the Lord could just save so-and-so, this major political figure, or, or this famous actress, or this great athlete, if the Lord would just save that person, what a platform! What a platform for the gospel! And you know what God does? He says, I don't need to do that with the bold. I don't need to do that with the beautiful. I'm going to take the base things of this world. I'm going to take the not so many noble, the not so many mighty, and I will elicit praise from them so that no one will misunderstand where the praise is truly coming from. Right? Look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to show you this. This is, a, this is a principle that we need to remind ourselves. 
If any of you, like me, might have been tempted to say, well, I mean, Lord, if, if you just save so-and-so, if you just bring so-and-so to Christ, I mean, they've already got this huge platform in the world. I mean, we've, we've been watching the Olympics, right? Lord, save one of those guys. Save one of those gals. I mean, they could be, they could be such a testimony for Jesus. And here's what 1 Corinthians 1 says. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of whom? The wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. I mean, all these scribes and all these Pharisees and all these grand religious leaders, the ones who've studied their Bibles for all these years, the ones who wear the long flowing robes, uh, the ones uh, who seem to be so esteemed in the crowd. Yeah, let's get them on Christian TV. Surely that's going to be the most effective. And what does God say? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It's not sophistry. It's not Greek mythology. It's not somebody's human philosophy. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Isn't that interesting? The folly of what we preach. That's what the world thinks it is. the, The folly of your preaching. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. That's their God. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. Yes, I realize, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is what? He's the power of God and the wisdom of God. You ever heard anybody say, Christ, come on. Jesus, no way. He died on a cross. How weak is that? Christianity for you is nothing but a, what? A crutch. That's what they say about Christ. But what does Paul say about Christ? He's the power of God, and he's the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That may have even been the idea in Psalm 8 with David himself. The weakness of God is in putting his praise in the mouth of nursing infants is stronger than the strongest man in the universe. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. There it is. Not many were of noble birth. Well, we're not after those who can bring a great platform For Jesus Christ? Why? Because so many of them, if they were to be on the platform, they'd probably talk more about themselves than more about Jesus. This is what I did. This is what I accomplished. Oh, and by the way, Jesus did it all. What? No, what you want to say is, it's all from Him. 
Verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why? Because he, God, he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in whom? The Lord. You see, God is willing. No, he's desirous. It's his plan to remove anybody who thinks they can add Jesus to their otherwise stellar platform. Look at chapter 2. It's amazing. Verse 1, And I, this is Paul coming to the Corinthians, when I came to you, brothers, I, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. See, that's where that wisdom lies. It's in God. It's in God the Creator. It's in the ever-wise God. It's not in us. No wonder God takes little bitty babies and He puts His praise in their mouth so that when they're shouting, Hosanna, the son of David, when, when David's greater son is, is saying, I am the Messiah. God delights in putting on the lips of infants, toddlers, rather than the most erudite, the most powerful. That's what he's saying in Psalm 8. This is, this is a truth from the Word of God. The infinitely wise mind of God who delights in manifesting his majesty and his splendor has chosen to do so in part through the smallest of his creation which then thwarts the greatest minds of men. There's the story of Karl Barth who might not have been and certainly wasn't orthodox in all of his doctrines but he was someone who was seen as a major theologian. And he came to America to give some lectures, and while he was here, someone in a question and answer session said, Dr. Bart, a great Swiss theologian, you're very erudite, you're very wise. Could you tell us, sir, could you summarize from your 13-volume church dogmatics, from your All of your writings, could you summarize for us, sir, all of that in a sentence? And the the crowd just gasped. How How could someone do that? And he actually said, yes, yes, I will do so. And this is what he said. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Just like a little baby. Jesus loves me. That's the essence of it. And the more babies that do that, 
and the more children that praise God, Jesus delights in the crowd because it's coming from the least of these. And it's absolutely establishing strength, prepared praise, even in conflict with the greatest religious, religious leaders of the day. That's what he's saying here in Psalm 8. It's majestic. It, it truly is majestic. Because who would have thunk it? Who, who would have come up with this? We would have all said, no, 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 no. I mean, not, not the children. Let them go play. Let them go do their own thing. And God says, no, I have a purpose. I have a purpose for putting my praise in their mouth. Because I want to show the contrast between who gains the glory. Not anybody else but me. And then, the second section of this psalm. God's glory is mediated through the very pinnacle of creation. This is verses 3 through 8. When I look at your heavens, David says, picture David at night. Remember he was that shepherd boy? Picture him at night, and he's looking up at the vast starry sky, black as black can be. And those stars are on that black velvet, and he can see them so clearly in the Middle Eastern sky. And he says this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, which implies the the intricate intimacy with which God fashioned his world, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Stop right there. This is, again, amazing to me. David is saying, when I look at this vast universe with the starry heavens and I think of your immensity I think that you are the awesome God the majestic God the God of splendor the God of glory how could it be that you then would condescend to create somebody as puny as a man What is in the mind of God? He could have done anything. He could have created through millions of different kinds of plans. The plant kingdom, the animal kingdom. He could have even taken the animals and given them just a little bit more of an infusion of some kind of a instinctual capacity that they're actually the rulers of the world, right? They're strong. Capable. Problem is, they've got no mind. They have a brain, but they've got no mind. They've got no rational capacity. But God could have done it. He could have said, that's the pinnacle of my creation. He could have made the plants talk. Seems like sometimes when you go to a movie, they do. He could have made... In a hundred different ways, the opportunity for God to put himself on display. And David is looking out at all of those starry heavens above, and he sees them and he wonders. 
What is man? What is man? You know what's interesting to me? I see three distinct but constituent aspects to God's design here. Look at verses 3 and 4. Here's what I see here in verses 3 and 4. Frailty. Frailty. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, David talking to God, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Man is just of the dust himself. Right? Turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. This is, a, this, is no, uh, this is no grand entrance on the scene of human history. This is man coming to life out of the dust. Look at chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So that's what happened. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, how did man come about? How, how was Adam to come here? What happened? Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Was it some sort of glorious appearance? Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of what? dust from where the ground in fact avam may actually the word for adam man might be red from the red dirt he forms man out of the dirt that my friends is uh that's inglorious i mean you and i i don't much hardly ever work with dirt but it's not glorious it's not grand. I mean, God, again, could have had a thousand ways to, to create mankind. He could have created them into existence in a way that wasn't so earthy, right? He, he could have created him with, with a robe, right, with a, with a scepter. This is the pinnacle of my creation. No, he chose the dirt. He chose the dust of the ground. You know what that means to me? Frailty. Frailty. He's utterly, David, marveling at a God who's created the entire universe, billions and billions of stars and galaxies and galaxies of other planets and other stars. And he creates the pinnacle of his creation. Adam out of the dust of the ground? You know, there's a purpose there. Because who gains the greatest glory? God. Yahweh God. Not Adam. He's nothing but constituent dirt. That's who we are. That's who we are. No wonder Paul said we're just clay pots. That's what we are. And yet, notice what it says. What is man that you are, what? Mindful of him. 
Mark that down. Circle it, underline it. God is so gracious. The majestic God who created everything in the heavens and on earth, including what verses 7 and 8 say about all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, what we just read in Genesis 1. God doesn't let it slip his notice that we are here to even though we're dust of the ground, even though we've been made from the red of the ground itself, God is mindful of us. Does that encourage you? Well, that encourages me. Because here's this majestic, sovereign God who is in the business of creating worlds planets, stars, billions of them. What is he doing thinking about me? Yet he does. He does. Every one of your cares, every one of your sorrows, every one of your worries, every one of your cares, he is mindful of you. Now he's the creator God and he gains all the glory. And he's the greatest being in the universe. I grant you that. But the Bible says here, even though this is not the focus of this psalm, the focus is on God and his majesty, it does say right there, what is man that you are mindful of him? God is mindful of you. I mean, think of this God. Think of him. He is not only the creator God, but he's the sustainer God. And he's working right now, ever and always, to sustain everything with perfection. And he does, even with sin in the universe, and even with you and me and all of our faults and frailties, our sin and our disregard of him, he is ever mindful of us does that encourage your heart this majestic God is even thinking about puny frail Lance Quinn wow and notice what he says in the latter part of verse 4 and the son of man you know what son of man means it'll later mean a whole lot from Daniel's prophecy and Jesus using it for himself, it'll mean a whole lot more then. It's got more freight as Jesus used it. It doesn't mean that here. Son of man is the idea of someone who is transitory, creatureliness. So what is man? By the way, that word man that he uses there in verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? Man, enosh. It's actually a word not like avam, like man, Not like ish, like man. Those would have been normal words that we would have thought he would have used there. But Enosh is that idea of man in his frailty. What is this frail man that you are mindful of him? What is this son of man that you care for him? Please don't miss those verbs. 
you are mindful of him and you care for him. He's attentive to every need, every thought, every desire. In some contexts, that word care for has the idea of God divinely intervening in your life for the purpose of changing your very destiny as a person. He cares for you. Remember 1 Peter 5, 7? Casting all your cares upon him for he what? Cares for you. That's why I love this psalm. You know, I could go to this psalm and I could dwell on this and if I dwelt on it as long as I desired, I'd be missing the point because it's not the point, right? And that's sometimes what Christians are prone to do. We want to give solid thumbs up for the idea that God is mindful of me and that he cares for me, and if I'm not careful, I'm going to miss the point of the psalm because the point of the psalm is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And it's not wrong for you and for me to say, how majestic is your name, the one who is mindful of me and the one who cares for me. That's a part of it, part of it but don't let it be the whole. Don't let it be the emphasis. Don't let it be in your mind that God created me this wonderful person that I am. And don't I thank God that he's so mindful of me and that, that he cares for me ever and always. You know what? That's what we call the prosperity gospel. And it's a heresy from the pit of hell because you've missed the whole point. The whole point is that this is a God-centered psalm. And while we are the pinnacle of God's creation, in fact, do you see there in verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. That's sounding like it's tremendous, and it is. And we move from frailty to what we might call here in verse 5, dignity. Dignity. And there is dignity there. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And by the way, that phrase, heavenly beings, that's one word in the Hebrew text, and that's Elohim. That's the word for God. And while the Septuagint again says heavenly beings as though it's the idea maybe of angels, this is probably in my judgment to be translated, you have made him a little lower than God. You say, well, there you go. Now you're talking. <laughs> I am the pinnacle of creation. Yes, I am. I've been created a little lower than God himself. Yes, you have. You've been created in his image. We read that in Genesis 1. His image and his likeness, Selim and Demuth. You, you and I have been created in the very image of God and in his likeness. And yes, it's true that you and I are above the plant kingdom and, and above the animal kingdom. Yes, that's true. And we have been created a little lower than God himself so that we could be the regent and vice regent, Adam and Eve, of God's creation. Yes, that's true. But don't get so stuck on yourself. 
because, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is my name, your name, your name. Tremper Longman says this, very wise, humans are less than God to be sure, but they are closer to God than anything else in the created order. After all, according to Genesis 1.27, human beings are created in the image of God. That is, more than any other creature, humans reflect and represent God. God is glorious, and humanity, as created in the image of God, reflects that glory. But then he says this, it is a derivative glory, analogous to the way in which the moon reflects the light of the sun. Yes, it's a derivative glory. And we must never forget that fact. Do you know that the whole self-esteem movement is built upon the idea of reversing what I just said? Where the focus is on self and the self's esteem? No. Even though we are in fact created in the image of God and we are called upon by God to represent him, do not reverse the created order. You say, what happens when you do that? Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. What did they do? They ended up, because of their sin and their suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, they ended up worshiping the creature rather than the creator. That's the problem. No wonder David is coming along and saying, look at this vast universe, and yes, Man is the pinnacle of your creation, but get it in the proper order. There is dignity. And you and I as New Testament covenant-believing Christians, we say that we are created to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Right, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, Romans 8, 29. Yes, we are created in the image of God through the person of Jesus Christ, being conformed to the image of Christ. But whose form are we to be image bearers? Christ, not our own, not our own. Keep the order right. And I even see here authority, not just frailty, not just dignity, but authority. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That's dominion. That's authority. That's submission. Yes, it is. But don't see that as the controlling idea of this psalm. Don't see that as the controlling idea of your life. Because when you do, the whole of creation turns on its head. You and I might be able to say it like this. The essence of the spiritual warfare of the Christian life is not to get the order reversed. Right? I mean, it's a fight to do it. It's absolutely a fight to do it, to keep the order in its proper perspective. God is the creator. God made the starry heavens. 
God is the one who's majestic. And you and I are his worshipers. And yes, we are his regents and co-regents to bring everything in subjection to Jesus Christ. Yes, it's true, and it's a thousand times true. And I would never argue the point except when you and I come to the place where we're losing the battle and we reverse the order and I think more about me than I do about God. And we struggle because we do it all the time. So if this is helpful, keep the order in proper order. Keep it in proper perspective. Yes, it's true that we have dominion over the works of your hands. He says it. You have put all things under his feet. What kind of things? All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Yes, yes, yes. But no, 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 if it means I start exalting myself. Because then it's, O oh Lance, O oh Lance, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's a constant daily battle. It's a constant fight. And you know that there was one, as we close, who was in his flesh as a human being, who is likened unto this very psalm. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. This is the great, it's a great way to end. Hebrews chapter 2. The writer to Hebrews was meditating on Psalm 8, and this is what he said. Speaking about the idea that Jesus is superior even to angels. Even if that passage in Psalm 8 is referring to angelic beings and not God. And it sometimes is used, Elohim, for angels or spirits. And here in Hebrews 2.5, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? You know where that is now, don't you? The somewhere is Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. Notice that change, for a little while, because he will and is exalted now. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. That's what it says about man. Uh, he's been crowned with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. It's a quote right out of Psalm 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't, right? Uh, the, the whole earth is not under our dominion. And it's not under Christ's dominion, at least in reality. There's going to come a time where it will. But there are still people who flaunt in the face of Jesus their sin. Verse 9, but we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, 
for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Thank God that Jesus the Christ is that ultimate man who through his suffering, the suffering of death, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone, everyone who would ever believe. This, this is the ultimate pointing, the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 8. And this is our Savior. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Savior. Jesus, we thank you that God the Father for a little while put you a little lower than the angels so that through your suffering of death you might taste death for everyone who would ever believe. Thank you for being the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 8, David's greater son. And as David looks out to all the starry heavens, and he asks the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? And what is the son of man that you have cared for him? And I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you were most mindful of Jesus and that you most cared for Jesus so that through him, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, you would also be so mindful of us and that you would so care for us. Please let us keep the created order in order. Don't let us flip it around where we think we're the pinnacle of creation. Allow us very humbly and very wonderfully to accept that we are the pinnacle of your creation, but it's only that which is above the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. We can't take any credit. We can't put our thumbs in our suspenders and think how glorious and how honorable we are if that means that we're diminishing your majesty and your splendor. Thank you for allowing us to continue to be God-centered, God-majestic, Yahweh-splendored in and through the person of Christ. May we now celebrate this, your table, through the honor and for the sake of Jesus Christ, to your glory, by the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Men, if you'll come before us to receive the bread, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. As we do...
I want you to turn, is it in the uh, hymns, Modern and Ancient? All right, number 52. Number 52. How deep the Father's love for us. Yeah, could I have one? Let's sing together. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That He should give His only Son to a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of sin. The Father turns His face away As wounds which mar the chosen deep the Father's love for us? Here's the answer. Jesus. That He died. He died for us. If you're a true believer, whether you're a member of this church or not, take this bread now and let's celebrate together the death of Christ. Father, it is through the death of Christ that gives us hope, the hope of heaven, and to experience the deep love of you, Father. May that love be ever and always defined in our hearts through that cross, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for sinners like us. In your name, amen. The men will pass the cup among us. Turn to 97. 97. God, oh great God of highest heaven. 
is emblematic of the blood of Christ sacrificed for us the shedding of his blood is for the remittance of our sin forgiveness I heard someone say once a very famous person oh if I could only know that I was forgiven you and I can know that through the cross of Christ in his shed blood. Let's do it together. Let's take that song sheet one last time and sing Psalm 8 as we close tonight. Thank you for coming. Thank you for participating in the Lord's Supper. The men are going to take the baskets and you can place them there and then sing with us think about these great words now as we've studied tonight 